Grab on BFBS with Kate Jabot. This week, calls to transfer aid budget to Britain's military. The armed forces are actually better at doing many of the things that are involved in humanitarian operations than any other kind of organisation. And a warning over military intervention in Syria. The key thing, I think, is the messages that are sent to the people who are one, two, three, several tiers below Assad. First this week, 2013 has begun with Argentina's president reiterating her calls for the UK to hand over the Falkland Islands. An open letter has been published in The Guardian today with Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner urging David Cameron to negotiate a solution. With me on the programme this week, as ever, is our defence analyst Christopher Lee. And we're also joined by Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University. Hello to you, gentlemen. Uh, Paul, what do you make about this latest development from Argentina? It has a lot to do with internal Argentine politics, uh, if you like, uh, providing a little bit of a diversion. But at the same time, it, it is a reflection on the fact that the Argentines still very, feel very strongly that this is their land. Uh, it's bitterly disputed, and even though the war was, what, 30 years ago, there is still this perception that this is an unfinished business. And I think what they want is at least some semblance of an opening up of relations, although I think that's not easy at all for the current British government. There are arguments that if you want to get the peaceful development of that part of the South Atlantic for both sides, then you have to have some sort of coming together. But beyond that, I think it's, uh, it's not going to be an easy issue. And, and Christopher, at the timing of this, to coincide with the 180th anniversary of what Argentina described as some kind of colonial act by the British, what exactly happened 180 years ago? Well, I mean, basically, the, you know, the, the British moved in uh, to the islands for all sorts of reasons, but so did a lot of other people. Um, if you look at the state 180 years ago, for example, of, Afghan uh, of, uh, of Argentina, it wasn't the Argentina that we know today. It wasn't the consolidated, carefully governed state. Also, the French were involved in, 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 in the Falklands. Even the Irish were involved in the Falklands. And this becomes extraordinarily important to understand that the, the claims that the Argentinians were making on the basis of what happened in the 18th century are a bit, a bit sort of vague. What is very important, though, is that if you go to the United Nations... And I was doing that just before, uh, just the end of October. Go to the United Nations. There was a big movement to clean up all the colonial uh, anomalies. In fact, get you know anything that, that was once a territory, etc., back into hands. And there's a big group within the United Nations, very important group, uh, that are saying we must get include the Falklands in this. In other words, then you get a United Nations. Uh, 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 Security Council resolution to say you've got to clean this up and the, uh, the British and the Argentinians have got to open proper discussions about it and if we think, for example, it's one of those cases where the Americans will actually sort of, uh, sort of veto that, we're wrong. Obama, unlike Reagan, Obama will not support Britain over this because Obama's interests are very much in the organisation of American states, i.e. Latin America. Start looking at the Hispanic vote in, in, in 2016 and you start to get an idea why. And Chris, um, Paul, uh, how do you see the situation in 2013 developing over the Falkland Islands? Because obviously there's going to be this referendum where the people on the islands will decide whether they want to remain uh, part of Britain, uh, so uh, sovereignty. I don't see any major developments. It'll be at the political level. I think the Argentines may well make quite a lot more noise about it. But what Christopher says is important. 
in terms of American politics, this is a radically different situation to 30, 32 years ago. It's worth remembering, though, and this has been revealed by some of the recent papers under the 30-year rule, that a couple of years before the war in 1982, uh, Nicholas Ridley was involved in very confidential discussions in Switzerland with Argentine counterparts, and there was serious talk about a 99-year lease back. And the Argentines remember this, and so they think there might be some leverage in this. But in terms of domestic politics in Britain, I don't see any sort of real movement at present. And Nick Ridley, when he came back, he said to the then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, we've got it hacked, we can do a lease back on this. And she said, right, you take this to the House of Commons, and they misjudged the House of Commons, and it was Parliament here that turned around and said, no way do we give back the the Falklands. And that's important to consider what David Cameron and the coalition of Nick Clegg and David Cameron would would do under circumstances, depending upon that referendum in, is it March? Yep. Or, was it, or was it February? But anyway, it's in the first ne- next couple of months. Right, well, this week there was a stark warning to Europe from the American ambassador to NATO. Ivo Dada says Europe is going to have to rely less on the US for military support. He says some countries, including the UK, are going to find the costs of fighting in Afghanistan disappear from their balance sheets next year and that that money can be spent on improving armed forces capabilities. Christopher Lee and Paul Rogers are obviously still with me. And no surprise that the US wants Europe to look after itself more. Uh, Paul? Absolutely not. But of course, the issue is that although there will be cost savings, there are already for the Dutch and the French and the Germans as they've largely withdrawn and will be for the British. The reality is this is at a time of very severe financial constraints within Europe, and that applies to virtually every country. So the reality is that it is far more likely that the savings that come out of the withdrawal from Afghanistan over the next two years will actually be savings which are passed on to other budgets. And it's not at all likely that that will go into improving other defence capabilities. The British have a particular issue in that we have the very high costs of the Trident system and the two very big new aircraft carriers. And there isn't very much sort of latitude for further developments. The end result of all this, this I think, is that although Eva Dalda takes this view, I don't think he's going to get a very good hearing in Europe. Well, the warnings from the United States came at the same time a report by the right-wing think tank, the Civitas Institute, suggested that billions of pounds from the UK's aid budget should be diverted to the armed forces. The report's author, Jonathan Foreman, believes a force of troops could be funded to focus on humanitarian relief operations. He spoke with our reporter James Hurst yesterday. Well, what I was suggesting was that the, th- that money be used to pay for heavy lift aircraft, helicopters. Um, on the naval side, it would be hospital ships and, indeed, our aircraft carriers, all the sort of dual-use machinery, dual-use capacity um, that, that obviously has very important military use, which we need, but also stuff that, that makes a huge difference in emergency and humanitarian operations. Are you suggesting also, as we head to out of our involvement in Afghanistan and with the involvement in Iraq at an end, that there is a refocusing for our armed forces on the kind of humanitarian interventions we've seen in places like Mozambique and Pakistan? I was, would not necessarily refocus that. I mean, I think the armed forces are already very good at that kind of thing. Um, I'm not saying that people shouldn't be trained for, for combat operations, to, to say the least. I just think, happen to think that the armed forces are actually better at doing many of the things that are involved in humanitarian operations than any other kind of organisation. They're also much less prey to uh, many of the things that make humanitarian 
aid go wrong, then they're much less likely to fall in, you know, to be bullied by bandits and militia groups. They don't have health and safety um, problems like a, like a lot of aid agency pe- uh, organisations do. So I think there, there's, I'm not necessarily saying we should shift priorities. But what you are talking about is cure in a situation which has got bad, whereas advocates of spending money on international aid states, it's about preventing problems, including preventing the spread of terrorism. Yes, well, I actually think that's pretty much nonsense. You know, people, sometimes people take your money and they don't necessarily do what you want. And there are, more, there are probably there are other ways of, of, of using it. It's a very, very inefficient form of leverage. And if you want to affect people rather than... I mean, one of the problems that people... One of the things that alienates people abroad is they see us giving money to corrupt governments. They know it gets stolen. They know that we know that the money is being stolen and wasted, and then they lose respect for us. So when, when that particular leader falls, um, there doesn't, you know, there isn't a great deal of affection left for the UK and other countries that have given aid knowingly to, to wasteful governments. Jonathan Foreman speaking to BFBS yesterday. Um, Christopher Lee, that point he ended on about money being used to prevent the development of terrorism, perhaps being uh, falling into the wrong hands and being misused, uh, is a valid point, isn't it? It's, it's considered a valid point, and always has been considered a valid Especially point. Especially with Afghanistan, but for the, example. Yeah, but the, the idea is what who gets the money, etc. But the, I, the, the thought... That you know, that you you come out of the Ministry of uh, or the Department of uh, Overseas Aid, and you sort of grab a, a whole bunch of money from them, and then you say you go along to Whitehall and you say, here are to the MOD, you can have this sort of money. You see, one, the MOD would not do with it what this guy is saying. Secondly, can you imagine George Osborne, the treasurer, you know, the chancellor saying, isn't that a good idea? You've got all that money spare, have you? Indeed. I'll uh, have that. And Paul Rogers, on the Treasury, that point about Afghanistan, I mean, it's, it's widely reported the Treasury wants to save money on the military campaign there. Uh, $4.1 spent last year, according to reports. $3.1 billion this year. Where will that saving go, do you think? I think it'll probably go into the government coffers to be used for quite different purposes. But on this point about the military being used for humanitarian relief, that's only a very small part of the aid budget. The aid budget is primarily a development budget which looks much longer term and in that respect is actually very much involved with issues of conflict prevention. The other issue is that if you actually look at how the more humanitarian relief end of it is done, you find a lot of the people who are involved on the ground are actually ex-military with a lot of experience in different circumstances. Um, You know, one almost senses that he's saying, you know, the humanitarian relief part is rather amateurish. It's anything but amateurish. Um, They take security very carefully, very seriously, but they do actually involve many ex-military. I've known a number of them who actually work in this field and work very competently. Let's just talk briefly about the situation on the ground in Afghanistan. Uh, Christopher, um, as the new year starts, uh, comments by an Afghan warlord, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, telling the Daily Telegraph that the situation in Afghanistan is exactly the same as it was a year before the Soviet Union withdrawal. Um, what does he mean? Is it true? Um, no, I don't think it is. It is in that part, in his territory, in his province. There are 34 provinces in, in Afghanistan. And the, and the task really is probably by the end of this year, not waiting until 2014 and when a lot of people get out, is to try and get the, uh, the ANA, the Afghan National Army, into a position where they can say, no, we're not the same as it was 
uh, when the when when the, the Soviet Union withdrew. It's also true, as we saw at the conference, the Paris conference uh, uh, before Christmas, where they were discussing this whole problem of how do you get the ANA up to speed. Is the one bit they didn't ignore is that the guys actually have to do it every single day on the ground are the police, and the police are incompetent. They are largely corrupt. Etc. And that is one of the difficulties that they cannot resolve. And when and when um, Mr. Karzai, President Karzai, said this week we have got three out of the four phases uh, that seem to be going on stream, none of that sort of none of that should have ignored, but it did. The fact that where does the intelligence come from? It comes from the Americans. Uh, where does the close air support come from? It comes from the Americans. Etc. Etc. That ain't going to be there in 2014. Gentlemen, stay with us. Still to come this week, warnings over military intervention in Syria. One of the situations that we looked at and we describe in our report is what we called catastrophic success. The number of people killed in the 21-month conflict in Syria has risen to 60,000, according to the United Nations. As the death toll rises and the humanitarian crisis worsens, there have been increasing calls for more direct international intervention. But a former lieutenant general in the British Army has warned against sending Western troops into Syria too soon. During his career, Professor Sir Paul Newton has helped plan and conduct operations in Afghanistan, Iraq, Kosovo and Northern Ireland. He said it could create a power vacuum and warned that weapons of mass destruction could fall into the wrong hands if the state disintegrated. His warning came in a report co-authored with three other Exeter University academics. Our reporter, David Spencer, spoke to Paul yesterday to ask him about the report. The first thing that any half-decent strategist has to understand is that your strategy will get you into a conflict. Anyone who then pretends to be able to predict with absolute certainty how that conflict is going to end does not understand the nature of warfare. The nature of warfare is that it is inherently unpredictable. You take action to try and shape your chances of your policy, your strategy, having the right outcome. But if you think you're going to control things in detail, you're sadly mistaken. There is always going to be dangers involved in whatever decision that you end up making. But your report talks about how weapons could fall into the wrong hands and the kind of catastrophic results that that then might lead to if it went wrong. One of the situations that we looked at and that we describe in our report is what we called catastrophic success. Put yourself for a moment, David, in the position of a battalion commander or a squadron commander in the Syrian Air Force. You've been involved in supporting the regime for the last 20 months. You most certainly have blood on your hands. It's been a bloody civil war. And you're receiving messages from the Syrian opposition that you don't have a future in whatever follows the fall of Assad. Now, if you suddenly sense that there is a shift in the conflict dynamics, let's say there has been a sudden intervention, and you cease doing your duty, then this particular phase of the conflict comes to a sudden end. But who, tomorrow morning, is securing the weapons of mass destruction? Who's maintaining some semblance of order in the territory of Syria Uh, to make sure that these weapons and other highly sophisticated capabilities don't fall into the hands of the jihadi groups that we know are already active in Syria. Does it worry you that William Hague has changed some of the rhetoric to talk about supplying rebels with weapons in Syria, stepping up that kind of side of things? I think it's, it's a very sensible strategy to make it clear to Assad and clear to all of the players that nothing is off the table. 
Uh, and certainly at Exeter, we were not saying that we should exclude intervention. And intervention, of course, can take a whole variety of forms. Uh, indeed, NATO deciding to send their defense systems down to the border in Turkey is, is a very limited and finite form of intervention. So I think it's entirely appropriate that people like the Foreign Secretary are using a whole range of messages to try and ramp up the pressure on Assad. The key thing, I think, is the messages that are sent to the people who are one, two, three, several tiers below Assad about what their future might be. They could be the security key. Uh, if we want to go to war with those people, I'm sure we have a whole range of ways of going to war with them. But the strategist's job is to provide a whole range of options that include the use of force and perhaps more subtle levers as well. So seeking to engage some of those people uh, could well be part of a, of, a, of a secure transition to whatever follows uh, what all the pundits are saying will be the inevitable fall of Assad. Fundamentally, though, I guess from your experiences, each different conflict has its unique parts and unique sensibilities. It is very difficult to be able to know what you're doing is the right thing. And that really, again, is where the scenario planning exercise is very useful because it brings together people from different backgrounds with different experience. Uh, if you have a look at the report, it mentions uh, on our website that the, the authors are all academics at the University of Exeter. But actually the people who are involved with us in the scenario planning exercise are those who have intimate knowledge of Syria, those who've been there recently, those who are connected with the Syrian opposition. And it's that quality of understanding that's the key as you take forward all of the policy options in any conflict. Now, in the UK, we happen to be very fortunate at the moment. We have in David Richards, the Chief of Defence Staff, who has absolutely no difficulty speaking truth to power. Uh, Stu Peach, who is the Joint Forces Commander, uh, is hugely experienced. And David Capewell, the Chief of Joint Operations, uh, similarly. And I think that people like the Prime Minister will benefit from their advice, not just on what military power can do, but also on the limitations as well. Professor Sir Paul Newton talking to SITREP's David Spencer yesterday. Well, Paul Rob Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at Bradford University, is still with us, as is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Um, Paul, um, at what stage do you think um, some very direct military intervention would be inevitable? I think it's very unlikely that there's going to be any major military intervention uh, except if there was some sort of incident involving chemical or even possibly biological weapons. One of the issues which is causing more and more concern in Washington is that as the Civil War goes on, more you're, you're finding more radical paramilitaries allied very loosely to that idea we still call al-Qaeda are operating uh, within Syria. Many of them are Syrians, many others have come out from outside, and they prove to be extremely effective. In fact, some of them are leading groups which don't have similar sort of religious outlook. And that has become a much more powerful element. And really, Washington is, is just not clear on what to do because it feels that if the Assad regime does go in the next anywhere between 3 and 12 months, you could actually find a post-Assad situation in which you have very powerful groups that have these radical leanings. And this is one extra reason why I think that intervention is very unlikely, except if there was to be any release of chemical weapons. Gentlemen, stay with us. This is BFBS. Sit, Red.
A number of drone strikes have taken place in Yemen in recent weeks as America looks to support the government in Sana'a there in ousting al-Qaeda from the country. At least three suspected militants were killed in a strike last week with Yemeni officials saying one of those kills was a senior al-Qaeda operative Salah Mohammed al-Amri. Iona Craig is a freelance journalist based in Sana'a. She is the Times of London Yemen correspondent and also writes for USA Today and joins us on the line from Yemen now. Hello, Iona. Thank you for joining us. What do you know about these recent drone attacks? Um, well, we saw this sudden uptick. There had been quite a lull um, since early November. There was a strike immediately after Obama's re-election the following day, and then we had nothing until the last week, the week of Christmas. And there was actually four strikes carried out um, uh, quite quickly and up to ten suspected militants killed. Um, some of those uh, that, w- that were killed um, are believed to have come from a, a prison break back in June 2011 in southern Yemen when uh, 60 fugitives um, escaped and up to 57 of those were already known to be al-Qaeda members. Um, so it seems that, that perhaps some of these drones were, were going after the, these militants that had escaped and previously been in, in prison in 2011. And how supportive is the government of these strikes? Um, well, President uh, Hadi, who's, who was uh, elected as, as Yemen's new president early last year in a, a one-man vote, he actually came out towards the end of last year in 2012 in a visit to Washington to, to say that he supported the drone strikes um, and the U.S. efforts to try and help Yemen um, break the back of al-Qaeda, which is very unusual, obviously, seeing the situation in Pakistan. Um, it's, it's quite unique to have a, a president of a country... Um, not only admitting that this is going on, but, but almost welcoming this U.S. effort um, and airstrikes being carried out on, on Yemen's sovereign territory. And does that explain the reason why there has been an increase in these uh, attacks in recent weeks? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the increase we saw really, it all began in, in about May 2011. There hadn't been a single strike between May 2010 and May 2011. Um, And with the political uprising that happened here in Yemen, uh, al-Qaeda took control of of large swathes of southern Yemen. And I think there was was almost a a stage of of the drone tax to be brought in um, because al-Qaeda was just gaining strength and gaining numbers. Um, And that's when we saw a a renewed sort of drone program starting off in Yemen. Um, And then that really has kind of climaxed uh, in 2012 as this military operation um, pushed or eventually resulted in al-Qaeda withdrawing from these towns. Um, And certainly the U.S. has said that they've had much better cooperation with uh, President Hadi than they had with the former President Ali Abdullah Saleh. Um, And it seems to be, therefore, quite a cosy relationship between um, the U.S. and Yemen's president at the moment. Christopher Lee. It's, It's worth remembering that a drone strike has to be signed off by the President of the United States. They're not done by a local commander or even the, the, the command area. Um, the President is convinced that the main al-Qaeda threat, as seen by CIA, etc., is now comes from the area that we're now talking about. It's not other areas, although drones sort of attacks in, in Pakistan, as we've seen in the past 24 hours, etc. But that is the centre of the confusion of the analysis of, of, of al-Qaeda. And so this is coming from the top, and that must be remembered. Iona, what, what kind of sense do you get of the public support or otherwise for these uh, drone strikes? Um, unfortunately, I've been living here for two years, and as it appears as almost a direct result of all of this. 
there has been a huge rise in anti-American sentiment here, both from the, the youth who led the revolution last year to people I've met in southern Yemen who have been affected by these strikes. Um, because I think a, a lot of them feel that, um, obviously, there's, there's the concern over civilian casualties, but in large areas in the south, they were also used as part of the, of the military campaign, and a lot of houses and, were destroyed, and, in fact, one town was almost completely flattened. Um, obviously, that was a combination of, of, of Yemeni strikes as well, but they, they're still seen, even the Yemeni strikes, as, 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 Amer as America being behind them. Um, and despite this increased campaign, despite the use of all these strikes, you still have the top members of al-Qaeda um, at large. They still haven't, haven't been killed. Um, we saw in 2012 more strikes carried out in Yemen than in Pakistan. You know, the number of strikes have uh, more than trebled here in the last, in the last year. Um, and yet you still have Nasr al-Wahayshi, um, uh, you know, the head of al-Qaeda. You still have um, Ibrahim Asiri, who's the famous bomb maker that's um, created these three plots to, to um, bring down um, U.S.-bound uh, planes. And these, these men are still alive. So there's a lot of killing going on, but the, but the top guys haven't, have yet to be affected by that. All right, Iona Craig from Yemen, thank you very much. Uh, Paul Rogers, uh, just to reflect there on what's the point she was making, um, how effective do you think these uh, these drone strikes are in dealing with al-Qaeda-linked groups? Well, the United States thinks they're very effective. If you look at it in broad terms, the first decade of this uh, century was very much boots on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're moving very steadily to what I call remote control, the use of armed drones, special forces, privatized military companies, uh, very different in approach. And in the short term, the American view is this is the better approach. But as Iona was just saying, you get that reaction in Yemen, the bitter anti-Americanism, uh, the killing in the last 24 hours of the senior Pakistani leader, Mullah Nazir, is going to be met with a lot of opposition within Pakistan. In the short term, this approach of remote control seems to work. In the longer term, I think it could be very different. But for the moment, this is what the Obama administration is going with. The government's defence cuts have been heavily criticised in the annual guide to the British military's fleet of ships. British warships and auxiliaries is published today at a time of increasing pressure on the resources available at sea. Once again, author Steve Bush is scathing about the cuts in 2010's defence review, describing the policies as ill-thought, misguided and savage. Well, Steve joins us on the phone now. Uh, Steve, has the Royal Navy got the ships it needs now and in the foreseeable future? Well, I think the, the short answer to that is no. Um, when the Chief of Defence Staff says that he is concerned at the lack of destroyers and frigates, you must tend to agree with him that um, we haven't got enough ships to carry out the jobs they need. The Royal Navy surface fleet, uh, even now operating at maximum tempo, just 19 vessels rather than 32 needed. What do you think the impact will be? Well, the impact is going to be that we're going to have fewer ships to do the job. The more you use the ships we've got now, you're going to wear them out quicker, you're going to put them into maintenance for longer, so they're not going to be available. So all, all this talk about we can, we can operate with fewer ships because they're more capable, um, they can't be in more than one place at one time, and if you push them as hard as you're pushing them at the moment, you're going to have to spend money maintaining them and taking them out of service to maintain them. Christopher, what do you think uh, so far any evidence uh, has emerged of the impact of the SDSR on the Royal Navy and its capabilities? It's not just now, it's what happens in the future as well. Um, give an, ex an example. Um, if you have f 
uh, at the moment, what was it, 19 vessels to do a job that they said 32, uh, wasn't it, Steve? Yes. 32 uh, vessels. Yeah, 32 vessels. If you're, if you're cramped up with that sort of obligation, lots of things happen. Apart from maintenance, maintenance of the vessels, the guys in the ships... They don't get sea time um, uh, training as they should have, although it sounds they would do on the, on the job. They don't get shore-based shore training, forward training, which they need to. You get also over, if you like, overwork of, of groups using, uh, using resources that they've got at the hand and not being able to develop them. And that is the problem. If you go further and you look ahead to the lack of money that's going to be around in 2014, 2015 then somebody's going to turn around at the MODA one day, very shortly, and say, I wonder when we build these carriers, I wonder if we shouldn't sell one off to another country. Um, and if we sell off a carrier, you don't need as many surface and subsurface vessels as an, ex uh, 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 as an escort group. You therefore get rid of the idea of maybe a battle group. You therefore get rid of the idea of force projection in support of British foreign policy. That is the depth. That is the depth that the, the Navy is faced at the moment, and it can't possibly do it without more resources, but more importantly, without more proper planning rather than just paper planning. Steve Bush, what do you think? What is your biggest concern from the research you've done? Well, the biggest concern is, as, as Chris says, there just isn't the money around. And de defence should be based on strategic policy, but at the moment it's not. It's being based on what money is available. Um, ships are being paid off because they can't be, we can't afford to keep them going, not because they're not required for um, operations. If you take Libya, for example, it would have been ideal to have an aircraft carrier off there. Not just the aircraft carrier, but it would have been another string to the bow. Strangely enough, after Libya, the government has suddenly decided that we can't have a carrier gap anymore and we need to bring a carrier into service as quickly as possible. So it, it goes to show that the government are, are pushing defence policy by budget rather than strategy at the moment. And as that goes along, the less cash there is, the less ships we're going to have. All right, Steve Bush, author of British Warships and Auxiliaries, thank you very much for your time. Just very briefly, Paul Rogers, um, any implications, do you think, for uh, the protection of the Falkland Islands, given what's been in the news today? I think the reality is that uh, if you could envisage, and I think it's extremely unlikely, anything like 1982, um, then Britain would be in severe difficulties. Of course, they've approached that partly by having the big air base there and having uh, fighters and a larger troop contingent. But if in any sense, I think it's unlikely, the Argentines were to take over again, it would be extremely difficult for Britain with its current resources to do anything about that. We don't well, have the aircraft have. carriers no. to get down there, do we, Paul? No, no we don't. Well, that is all we have time for this week. My thanks to Christopher Lee and to Paul Rogers and to all of our guests. If you have any views on the topics we've covered this week, you can get in touch on our email address, which is sitrep at bfbs.com. Happy New Year and thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.